from the Torch Studio in Houston, Texas, featuring leaders and personalities from Jewish communities around the globe. This is the Sunday special edition of the Jewish Inspiration Podcast with Rabbi Arya Wolfe. Welcome back, everybody, to another special edition of the Jewish Inspiration Podcast. Our guest this week is my dear friend, Rabbi Yitzchak Feldheim. Yitzi, it is our hope and our dream that, God willing, through this podcast, we'll be able to learn more about you, but also be inspired by you and the life that you live and all of the teachings that you teach and you share with the entire world. So let's start first by welcoming you. Welcome to Houston. And then... Tell us a little bit about where did you grow up and where do you currently live? What's been going on in your life? I grew, I, I live today in Lakewood, New Jersey, most of the time. I have a weird situation. I'm a rabbi in a hotel in Miami many weeks. I, I commute from Lakewood to Miami. It's a, a kosher hotel. It's an amazing experience and uh, I enjoy it. I meet new people every week. I get to talk to new people. I get to see people from all over the world. It's one of them. Probably one of the most unique minyanim that exists because it's a hotel. So we'll have on any given Shabbos twenty five percent Chasidim, twenty five percent Yeshiva guys, you know, Israelis, more modern people, uh, from, people from the five towns, a few Mexicans, a few Europeans. It's an unbelievable mix, and I have to give a speech that everybody enjoys. And, uh, and it's they're all Jews, and everyone's yeah, coming I mean, no, to that hotel. No, to, not necessarily. I mean, they're, they're, but everyone in Shul, all, but they're all coming to 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 that hotel because it's an all kosher hotel. In the winter, Miami's like the place, you know. From from after Sukkot till Pesach, it's it's full with Jews, you know. Off season, you know, you'll get. It's not as popular. Go to Miami; it's very hot. I mean, today is air conditioning. People come. It's, we have a nice minion every Shabbos. But it's not all Jews. The hotel has other people right, in it also. Understand. The hotel fills up. But uh, the minion is Jews. You know, we have a dining room, the food, the, the catering, everything's only co- you know, kosher. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's, it's always hard to go home. Maybe people bond over Shabbos. So all of it's our amazing. friends watching and listening, you can put in <laughs> Jewish answer. inspiration in your code and you get 10% off. We're not going to mention it. I didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe. You could talk to them. But, uh, if, you know. I know the rabbi there. That's right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 you won't regret coming. We'll have a good Shabbos. What's the name okay. of the hotel? It's, it's called the Altier. The Old the Tier Bay Harbor. It's on 96th Street. It's like the hot area today. and uh, Near Surfside. Yes. Okay. But during the week, I'm in Lakewood. Lakewood, I, I, I give a lot of classes. I, I talk to people. I, I do care of the... That's most... This is Shabbos. It's so, just... So just a little history. That's uniqueness. Like, there's a lot of people doing what I do during the week. What I do on Shabbos is weird. So I'm mentioning it. You know, it's... Uh, you, so I'll just give our listeners a little bit of a history. When I was engaged to my wife in 2001, we were going to get married about a month later, uh, I called up a friend of mine right before Rosh Hashanah, and I said, I need to... A month later from when I met you... And I was I called up a friend of mine right before Shoshana, and I said, "Look, I'm learning in Lakewood Yeshiva, and I just need a I need a, a different environment. I need some place to go for Rosh Hashanah." So he says, "You know, I know somebody who's the rabbi in uh, Yardley, Pennsylvania, uh, and maybe go there. Go there. You'll be able to be part of the uh, inspiration of the uh, of the community." And so I, I drove out there and I meet Rabbi Feldheim and it was uh, it was a magnificent uh, I would say love at first sight type of relationship where we just like hit it off and uh, you know ever since you've been here numerous times to Houston to join us with Torch and this Shabbos you were here for Beth Rambam it was such a privilege to have you stay by us for Shabbos so um, our our relationship goes back now at least uh, twenty two years twenty three years yeah yeah so they don't even know what we're talking about I, before I went to Lakewood. And Miami, I was in, spent 15 years in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Akirov, we built up Jewish a community. Outreach. I had a kolel there, and then a yeshiva. And then, then what happens is, like, everyone started to become from. And it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> they, they stopped asking hard questions. And they wanted to raise the mechitza. And do we have to sing every song? And every Shabbos a speech. So let me ask you. Uh, well, I'll tell you uh, the punchline. So, uh, so, okay, so, yeah. so, so I started to sneak away from shul at night to go to colleges where people still 
were still asking questions. And I started like a program with a friend of mine. Well, he really brought me in, Mayor Goldberg. We started a program in Rutgers. I had actually started one first in Penn State. And uh, when I eventually left Yardley, that's what I went to do. I, I fell in love with college. College was, was, that's what I was like, felt like I was meant for. I got to talk, you know, to, to, to bright students who, weren't ready to were thirsty for knowledge thirsty and asking hard questions and demanding and they all said they didn't have a, they could stay up a whole night talking Torah I'd give a class and I wouldn't leave till three in the morning till the security guard threw us out and I, it was like I never felt like anything like it like I, I lived to that look in someone's eyes when they realized that the Torah is like real it was like was that that moment like like oh my god this is real <laughs> this is beautiful it's like that was like my I just I, I lived off that, and I I would drive home like could be a four energized. I would like go to Yale. It was a four hour drive, but I didn't feel it. I was just like driving home. It was like a smile. Like I was like like it looked weird. My kids would say sometimes like Ty, like you're doing that weird smile again. <laughs> like like stop it. <laughs> but that's what that was. So I I eventually left Yardley, and that's what I did full time. So I, let me ask you a question. You grew up, I, if I remember correctly, in Washington Heights yeah, in New York, yeah. New York City. So. What is a guy from New York City who grew up in a regular traditional Torah observant home, observing Shabbos, doing mitzvahs your whole life? I mean, you never really had a question. Maybe you're different than me, but I never really second guessed my observance of Shabbos. I never second guessed why I was putting tefillin on every day, almost almost in a robotic way. Right. And at some point, I had an epiphany where I woke up and I'm like, "Why am I just a robot? I should know what I'm doing. I should." Right. What was your transformation? For you and 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 how how many times did people ask you? Come on, you're just a regular guy like all of us. What are you going out and doing outreach for and teaching Torah to other Jews? Not everyone does that. Uh, what was your inspiration to do that? So, you know, I I don't know if my if I had to define like why I I, I got into this. It wasn't so much directly that it was outreach that triggered me. It was I grew up. You have to understand, like Washington Heights was. We lived in the city, an apartment building. We had an apartment. I would go to camp, and everybody was living in Muncie or in Brooklyn. Everyone had houses, and we were like the city. It was like old school, you know. So, I I always felt we grew up feeling like a minority a little bit, you know. Like the rest of the firm world was in Borough Park. I remember thinking they all learned Chumash, which translated in Yiddish, and we didn't learn Yiddish, you know. So. When that happened, that, that was me, by the way. I learned, I learned it in Yiddish. You learned it in Yiddish, yeah. yeah. But that was like my, my cousins. Everyone was like, that. I, I thought like we were maybe we we were more modern, or I didn't know what we were. We weren't modern, but like I in camp, we were the minority. Everybody was Brooklyn. Like we had neighborhood day. You know, there was there was Brooklyn and Borough Park, Flatbush, Muncie, and then out of town. <laughs> we were with the out of towners. It was Cleveland, Chicago, Brazil, and Washington Heights. You know, maybe some years we still had Manhattan. They put us with the Lower East Side. But what happens is, like, a lot of times kids from that, you become insecure or, or you're like, you're, I loved my childhood. I was happy. And I was, a, I was good at sports. I was confident. So I, I sort of took it the opposite way. And I became like a, a defender of, of my uniqueness and like a hilla. And I would like, became a big, I learned to love what I had and, and defend it. And it was a chip on my shoulder, but I would like. And would, to be proud of it. Yeah. I remember trying to convince people like the weird looking back now is like, like, no, it's so much better to have sukkahs in an apartment building. I know we don't have our own sukkah, but we all eat together. It's like eight families. We, we, we share from one's food. I'm like a little kid selling. I was always selling, but it, but it came, it, it came from, it wasn't like in, like I felt insecure so much. It was more like I was I loved my community and I didn't understand why no one else didn't get that. Like it was. It so was, at what point did you decide that's it? I have to go and dedicate my life to teaching. Yeah, so I, I, that's why I always felt like whatever I whatever I had and I loved and I liked, I wanted everyone else to love it. I just wanted. I first was selling Washington Heights. I was selling apartment buildings. I was selling. Uh, you know, that, like like the kids in camp. They all played basketball. We couldn't play basketball because it was like the city. So, so it was other races that had the courts. We can never, I can never get the basketball court. So we played hockey in the street. 
um, using electrical tape so we didn't dent the cars instead of, instead of pucks. So I was selling hockey. I was saying hockey is the best sport. <laughs> and then, whatever. And then as I grew up. Very patriotic I, of your own. Yeah, yeah. But as I grew up and I realized that there's cooler things in apartment buildings and I, I, I got into learning and I got into Judaism, I, I just love that and I wanted to sell that. And I, 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 want, I didn't want anyone else to be missing what I thought was so beautiful. I started to learn Rev Hirsch. Because I went, again, I went to Yeshiva. I went to Long Beach. Yeshiva, I wanted to be Yeshiva Bacher. But I came from Wash Nights, which is like, I don't know if your audience knows the subtleties, Torem Derech It's yeah. like, that they go to college. So like, in Yeshiva, I was like, oh, you get, you're, you're going to go to college, Torem Derech I didn't even thought of it. I just wanted to be Yeshiva Bacher. But I, I didn't like being like, picked on that I, so I, I had to have answers. So I went and I bought all of Rav Hirsch's Svarim so that I could actually learn how to argue with them and win the argument. So then I got into that philosophy. And the more I read Rav Hirsch, the more I loved him. And I would like take every guy in yeshiva on walks to try and explain to him why Rav Hirsch was so good. And then I happened, the same thing happened with the Ramchal. I got into Ramchal and I wanted everyone to see the Ramchal. There's nothing like Derek Hashem. It's like, like, I remember I was in yeshiva and I was trying to convince guys to learn Derek Hashem with me. And so one guy went to ask the yeshiva, like, um, felt I want to learn Derek Hashem with me. Should I learn it with him? And the Rashiva said, tell him he shouldn't learn it either. It's like, I was like, what? <laughs> it's like the most magnificent thing that changed my life. Like, uh, so I, I really left yeshiva. I went to a different yeshiva. I went to another yeshiva. And I told the Rashiva, Rashiva said, why are you leaving? I said, ah, that's a weird reason. <laughs> I told him why. He goes, oh, nice. If you come to my yeshiva, I'll learn Das Tunas with you, Bechabrusa. One on one, and I never, and I knew what Das Tunas was. Right. <laughs> I looked That's it up. the next level of Ramchal's deep writings. That's the next, next look. But I was like, I said, really? Like, so Hashem led me, and but I always fell in love with what I was doing, and I was never happy with. I wanted everyone to. To, to feel that to, same to, passion. To feel what I felt, and that's that's what drives me to like today. So I, I ended up, like till COVID, that was living like my dream. I was every, I I, I left Yardley, which I loved. One, when you have a shul, you, you're dealing with the same 30, 40 people forever. It's nice. You have family. They feel like your kids. It was the most magnificent time. But I started going to college. So, And, and college, you mean going well, I started, speaking I started there, on Penn speaking State, there at yeah, night? Giving sure. I, 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 I was never like organized enough, responsible enough to make my own program, which, which in the end worked for my best interests. So I didn't end up having a program on a campus but you would I go end, teach. For I ended other up going for other people. Like they recruited, they got the people in the room, and I just came to the share. So that was share meaning give a class. Like like so. And I how long is that class? The class was like I basically gave a class every single day in a different city in the United States from eight till nine. I worked one hour a day, but then after the class, we would talk until the, until the security guards threw us out or the janitor, whoever it was, that made us leave the room, and then we'd sit outside on the steps and, and talk Torah. Depends. Sometimes I had to fly back, but most times when you fly out of town to a university, there's no flights back at night. So I would sleep over there and fly back in the next morning. And then go to the next campus. Next campus. This is what I did every day. And that's only because, it's like I, I tell people this, it's so our chasroinos are part of who we are, our flaws. If I would have been more organized and more responsible, so I'd be in Nebraska somewhere teaching, <laughs> so, you know, in the college. So Hashem gave me the, okay, maybe it's like a cop out to talk like this, but Hashem gave me the flaws that allowed me to use my, my, my skills, you know? And, uh, I, you know, some therapist is listening saying, you're too fooling himself. <laughs> like, you know, you should have settled down and had a bunch of students, but I, I, I love what I do. I'm very happy. And yeah. And I, I, I've been with you in, I've been with you in Austin when you've been there with Rabbi Trepp in, in UT. Oh, right. Trepp's and, the best. He's yeah, amazing. Outstanding. <laughs> he's, he's the best. And, and it's, it's just been a privilege. So if there was one thing from your childhood that you can bring back today, what would that be? <laughs> I, I, I could say radical things. You can say whatever you want. It's your it's your microphone. How much time do we have? I don't want to like waste time. I have enough time. time. I'll tell you. I'm going to say something. I like to say things that people are not going to hear anywhere else because then you don't need me. So no one, no one else is ever going to say what I'm going to say now. So I read a book by uh, by a great Jew, whatever, a big a big tzaddik who had a holy kids, Rashi Yeshiva, people who ran yeshivas. He wrote a book about growing up in, 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 in you know, the shtetlach, the small towns in Germany. And he was like a, rap, like, a, like a small memoir. And he writes that, he remembers when he came back from yeshiva, he, uh, he would daven like, like better and good when he came home for, for Pesach. 
because he knew there were girls in the balcony. I remember reading this and I was like cringing. I go, how, how could he write that? Like, like people are going to read this. Like he's, he's a rabbi. He's not going to be embarrassed. He just wrote, he's dominating because his girl's like, he's an old man. Like, why would you embarrass yourself when you're 80, 90 by stuff you felt when you were 14? Like, just let it go. No one's going to remember. <laughs> and, that, and I realized then that, what do you mean? I was the same way. You know, like, I remember when I went to Long Beach to Yeshiva, I came back ninth grade, my first off Shabbos. For 10 minutes, I was like tilting my hat, making sure it was perfect, making sure my tzitzas were out perfect, shuckling, because the girls were in the balcony. Now, what is that like? Like, why is it not embarrassing to admit to that? Because I, I think that, you know, to a 14-year-old boy, what does he know about God? Thirty-five-year-old man knows Hashem very well. He has kids. He's worried, but most people don't suffer when, when they're fourteen. They have nice, safe lives, so they're not so deep. So they don't know Hashem. You know what represents godliness to them? The Abbas Yisrael. The, the girls are are good. They're holy. They're pure. They represent ruchnius and spirituality. Spirituality. And when you go to shul, you want to be good. The idea that they're seeing you. Of course, Hashem is seeing you. But what do you know about Hashem? You know, you know Hashem's middlemen, and that's what the girls were. It wasn't that I'm going to beat up guys and show how tough I am. I wanted to be a good boy. I wanted to be deserving. And this is, how, this is the model of Klai Yisrael. This is the reason we have balconies. The Gemara says that Hashem, that the worker men on Cholamoid would go into the base of Migdash and they would build a balcony and go for the Simchas Beis HaSheva. A great a big party. And it said the balcony was a great improvement. What do you mean a great improvement? Like, it, it, what's great... The idea of the great the balcony. Tikkun Gadol. Tikkun Gadol. The, the great fixing. It, it, it fixed it really well. What does that mean? Great repair. Great, fi- great repair. What does it mean, great repair? If something's broken, it's either fixed or not fixed. It's not very fixed. You know? Very fixed means it wasn't fixed. So what's the weird expression? Um, Tikkun Gadol. A, a big fixing. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So I think what it means is, is, that, is that when you have a mechitza, so then the men don't see the women and the women don't see the men. And that's nice. Solve the problem. That's what it says. It says they first, they had this, this party, this like carnival. The men would be inside. The women would be outside. It didn't work. And they put the women inside, the azar, the courtyard, and the men outside, and it didn't work. And then they put, they made this balcony, the women in the balcony, and that was perfect. That worked. Because what's the idea? The best system in Klaiusol is not, the best system is the balcony. Because in the balcony, the men can see the women but they know that the women see them. And you have to, it's, it's, it's a real presence of Kedusha that you need to live up to. And I feel that today, all the shuls, the shtibels, we dive in the small shuls, we have no balconies, and, and we lost this. What I grew up with, that feeling, you know, I think if, if, I, was, if I was rich, this would be my tzedakah. I'd go to every shul and re-add a balcony. You know what happened with balconies back in shuls? No boy would ever miss shul again. Every boy would be on time. They would all daven with kavana. And more importantly, the girls would go home feeling powerful and knowing what the power of their dignity and their holiness is. That's the way a system works. That, I grew up in the Kahila. That's what it was. We davened. We were good. The girls, there were girls. We all, it's a system where you have to live up to Kedusha. And there's people rep- Today, everything's so segregated and we don't have this. What does a girl have to do today to feel powerful? You know, to feel that she's affecting things. It's not necessarily good. The equality has made it worse for them. Yeah. Well, it's, made, it's just made the, 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 you know, I was just happy he put it in writing. Like I never would have thought about it. I never would have admitted to these ideas. It's just very real. And the older I get, the more real my Judaism becomes. And I, I, I realize that, uh, you know, people, what I, one of the things I contend with the most on campus is the idea that Judaism has a, a lower view of women and there's nothing further from the truth. In, in, in Torah, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the Kedusha of Abbas Yisrael is the thing that makes the entire world work. You know, uh, that, that's, that's a big, big part. So, it's a, it's a big, it's a big I wasn't part. expecting that it's answer. A, a, so <laughs> so, so I, I, I miss it. I wish my kids would have grown up with balconies and shuls. Nobody, know, nobody see, knows what it is anymore. It adds, it adds an element of... Uh, of, of seriousness, of devotion that uh, yeah, yeah. subconsciously they and don't Everyone ends up prouder. Everyone ends up prouder. Daven. You know? So it, it's, you know, 
it's I, I, whatever you know so, I, I, I i tell this the line i tell college kids is i say this line, i mean it's sure, just, please, it's just like it's, i just say it because it's like so core to my Torah, is that the yetzer toiv we use these words growing up evil inclination bad inclination good inclination what's the grown-up meaning of these words so the grown-up meaning of the yetzer tov the yetzer tov are your dreams ambition yearning the good inclination is desire People think the bad inclination is desire and ambition. No, that's the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah Toiv wants to live. It wants to be vibrant. The Yetzirah is laziness and insecurity and fear. And the Yetzirah Toiv, what, what makes a man choose is the Yetzirah Toiv of his Yetzirah. What makes him choose to be great as opposed to, 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 to just chill? That's the whole world, to sit on the couch and do nothing. So you know, the answer to that, Hashem created the Gan. This is the Gan. He created the world. He put Adam and Chava in the Gan. He put Adam in the Gan. He gave Adam a, 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 an ambition, a desire to be great, and another drive to say, just give up and hide and sleep. And then the last thing he created was Chava. Chava, the Bas Melech, is the thing that makes a man choose ambition over laziness. This is the, this is, this is the secret. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, and, and it's not just Jewish. This is the entire world. The college kids need to hear this. Everyone needs to hear this. The girl, when she was eight years old, she wanted to be a princess. And the boy wanted to be a hero. That was his dream. He, every Purim, every, every Halloween, every Purim, whatever you Jewish, not Jewish, every girl wants to dress up as a princess and every boy something with a gun, a sword, or a cape. He wants to be the hero that deserves the princess. And that's when we're whole. And then we go through life and we get knocked around and the girls say, I'm going to be a princess. And the boys say, I'm going to kill a dragon. Which princess is going to want me? And then we give up our dreams and we go hide. Yiddishkeit is nothing more than, than, than the system that allows you to be 35 years old and still have the same beliefs and the same feelings you had when you were 15 or 14 or 12 or 10. You can, that's, to me, that's what it means to be complete, to be a dreamer and to be fiery. And uh, this is why we're, Judaism is so into preserving the dignity so my 15-year-old daughter, yesterday, after you said this in one of your speeches, so I said to her, is it true that you want to be a princess? And her face glows up and says, of course I want to be a princess. <laughs> it's, this, it's this unbelievable, you know, and I, say, I explained to her, I said, guess what? You are a princess. You're the daughter of Hashem. And when you carry yourself with dignity, you are exactly that. The problem it's, is, though, that... that if it's you not said, cool. If you said that to any girl... Who, who didn't grow up in your house with a Rabbi Wolby as a father or anyone who grew up in a from house, you say that, the girl's going to roll their eyes. Princess, you know, because it, it hurts too much. Girls in college, they burn their diaries. You know, it's a caricature. It's a, it's a cliche, but it, it happens. Or they don't burn it, they put it in the attic because you, people can't face the dreams they had growing up because it's too painful. But, but these are our dreams. Our dream, the princess dream isn't to be rich and like have fancy clothing. The dream is to be, to be so, no, but to be so valued that someone's going to fight to deserve you, to be inspiring, to be, to, 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 to have an effect on the world. And that's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he put Chava in to change the universe. And, uh, and I feel all that's in a balcony, you know? It's like the balcony is there watching. We're, we're the warriors going to war for them, flying their colors. Outstanding. Uh, I wish every girl would know this. Hundred percent. That's the, That's the, this is true female empowerment. This is what it's really about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want I want to ask you a, a different question. I know you mentioned that uh, privately that your grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I feel that you know we just uh, I would say commemorated the 80th anniversary of Yom Hashoah, uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I feel that our children aren't conscious enough of what the Holocaust was. First is, what can you tell me about your grandparents, where they were from, what they've experienced, and what do you feel is the most important thing for our children to know? Because, you know, history has a tendency to repeat itself when we ignore it. Yeah. Uh, so what do you feel to the listeners out there in Kentucky or wherever they may be, like what do they need to to know about the Holocaust, what do they need to share to their children about the Holocaust, and what do we collectively as a Jewish people need to be conscious of to avoid another Holocaust from happening? I, hear. I wish that the question would be longer and I have more time to think. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
the Holocaust is too big to like to answer. Like uh, I'm gonna, I'll tell you a, a thought. I'm not. This isn't my definitive takeaway on the Holocaust. It's just the Holocaust. You know, is, we'll, we'll get to that. Just tell me about your grandparents for a second. Who were they? Well, I uh, my, my my father's parents escaped. My father. Well, my father's my father's parents were from my mother. Father's mother was from Germany. My father's father was from Vienna. My father's mother's family escaped before the war. They went to Israel. They lived in Renana. They had a pardis. My grandmother was proud. She used to, very Haredi for a woman, but she tells me when she was young, they used to hide guns in the, for the Haganah in the trees in their pardis, wow. Renana. In their fields. All, all, the, all the trees had guns in them for the soldiers. That's where, the, that's where they were hidden. My father's father, um, he had three brothers. They were beaten up. They were called in in Vienna and the police, and they were beaten up, and they, they, they immediately left. Um, this is when the Nazis this is, came this in. Is, this is, yeah, in the beginning. So they also left before the war. My mother's parents weren't so lucky. My parents, mother's parents were in Czechoslovakia, and uh, they, they both went through the camps. But I, I know very little because they never talked about it. They never it. talked. They, they both lost almost their entire families. They were the only couple from their entire town to come back intact, meaning one, one was liberated by the Russians, one was liberated by the Americans, and they went home. Um, to the not town. knowing that their spouse was not, still yeah, alive. just that's what people did. You went back home to see who would come and who who would, and the, the non-Jews who took over their house allowed generously for them to live in the backyard in a hut, you know, uh, on their own property. Unbelievable. And, um, Do you know what's it, what what, what 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 camps were they in? They, they didn't talk. They, I, I mean, my grandmother was in a lot of camps. They, they were definitely at one point in Auschwitz. Um, but it was, even in the end, maybe they talked a little bit. But we just you know, we stopped know, asking. Grand- we, we understood it's not going to happen. My grandfather would like, we would go there. He would wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Really, he was sick his whole life. They had they had no teeth. They 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 almost died. My my mother was my mother was born in a DP camp in in Europe after the war in Czechoslovakia. And, uh, and my grandmother never talked about the Holocaust, and then she wrote a book. Out of the blue, she wrote a book. It's a big, what, what, a big change. It's a big change. So what happened? She heard that there were Holocaust deniers. She says, there are deniers. I'm going to document every single thing that happened to me. Oh. And she wrote a book. It's called Faith in the Night. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it. I think Israel Bookshop is the one that, that wow. published it. But she was not willing to accept that people were going to do- deny the reality that she, not the reality, the nightmare that she lived through. Right. See, my, my, gra- my mother's parents, the Holocaust service, they weren't, they weren't intellectual. They were, couldn't have written. They, you know, they were simple people. The whole, my, the holy people. My grandfather never missed a feel in his life. I don't think he could translate the words. The years he would have gone to a yeshiva, he was in camps and slave labor. He never learned anything. But he. But the one thing the they simple knew simple and more. He wouldn't miss davening. He was so proud that his, he would show me off. This is my grandson. He can read Gemara without vowels. You know, he told. I'm telling his friends that, and I'm like sitting there like. That's what I can do, you know. Like, but, but looking back, it's so so sincere, you know. He's a holy person, you know, and he ended up with children and grandchildren, learn Torah, and so here you have children, you have grandchildren. What what should they be knowing about this, and and what can we do as a people to live with more of a consciousness of this? <sighs> you know, it's almost not a topic in the world that isn't informed and improved by knowledge of the Holocaust. You know, it's like, it affects everything. If I had to pick one point that I want my kids to know, it's, it's what I think is, is the Jewish, again, it's, it's, so, it's so besides the point, but this is really because like, I do Kirov and I live in the secular world. With, this, this is the issue that I have to contend with, is, is that people are, you know, Jews are so impressed with everything out there. <laughs> like they, you gotta send your kid to Yale and Princeton and Columbia, and you want your kids to be like stop worshiping everything out there. Like like we, we how quickly can you forget? It's not wasn't just the Germans. It was your Europe. Your Europeans are sophisticated. The whole Europe, America. Nobody wanted to save us. No one wanted to take us. And here we are, fifty years later, worshiping them sacrificing our Torah chinuch because I want to send them to the other school because it has a better secular, more more liberal education. Uh, to me, that's like... How fast can we forget? But it's, but it's like groveling. It's worse than groveling. It's groveling after you just got a lesson. It's 
But there are many Jews who have told me, yeah, because we, we, we didn't assimilate, we didn't become part of them, so we were thorns in their eyes. And that's why today we have to be more like them and we have to be more, uh, you know, which, which I think is factually my, wrong. My response would be like, this guy, you give him a clip and you go like, like how distorted, like how, how hard are you fighting to defend your, your, your compromises and your insecurities? Nobody believes that. Anybody in the world believes that? Does anyone really? People, maybe I don't know. People, maybe people say people say crazy things, but but they're, whatever they're insecure, they want to fit in. They they look at they will look at media, and media makes all these empty lifestyles look so glorious and so powerful, and they want to be part of that, and they're they're ashamed of what we do, so they come up with re- weird notions. I, I, for me, I had a crazy breakthrough moment. I went to a relative's wedding. They, someone became Satmer. It was a Satmer wedding. And I remember I was a rabbi. And I remember a Satmer guy coming over. Satmer is one of the Hasidic dynasties. The, one of the, the one. biggest, it's the most one of the right, largest. It's the most right wing. It's like to the right of Attila the Hun, you know, like uh, whatever. I shouldn't say whatever. I, know. I don't even know what Attila the Hun is. It's just like a cliche. But Satmer is very, very right wing. And uh, I went to the wedding and... The Satmar boy comes over, really two boys, one was the spokesman, and they're explaining me everything. You know, this is, they're walking down with candles because of it. Like, and like, I'm like, my, my initial inclination was to be like horrified. Like, I'm a rabbi, I learned yeshiva, what do you know? You know, you're probably selling diamonds. You know, like, you can explain to me. But they're so cloistered and they're so, so like, ghettoized that they have no idea that the guy, because I don't have a beard and pay and I'm religious. It was just, this, that, but... I didn't get upset because I realized that, you know what, these are the outreach guys. They feel bad. They're trying to help me. The other guys are ignoring me. These are the guys who are trying to, to, to explain make things you, to, to me. make you feel so at I home. figured, you know, I'm going to encourage them. <laughs> I was enjoying it. I would go over, I would ask them questions, and they would say things. I would say, wow, that's a really good explanation. <laughs> I had such a good time making them feel good. It was like, great. And then it came to the dancing, and they show me the dancing. There's a circle. A few circles, and inside's an old man in a wheelchair with a Russian guy with a cap, you know, like an attendant, rolling this old man in a bekesha with his with his shreimel on, and he's holding the chassan's hands in the circle, and they're going mm-hmm. around. They're dancing. And they're dancing, him in a wheelchair, and the boy dancing, and an attendant reeling. It was a beautiful scene. And they explained to me the following. They say, you know, so till then I had this, still had this feeling that this black wall of people who have no respect for anything. I'm like... They look at me like it's got a sellout liberal Jew. They have no respect for who I am. I learn Torah. I'm in Lakewood. They don't even know what Lakewood is. And, and uh, why are they so like separated? Uh, look at me. I'm, I can speak English. I'm educated. And I'm still very from. Like, he tells me like this. This is what cha- really changed a big part of my life. He says, you see the circles, the outside circles, the cousins. The other circles, the sons and grandsons. And the middle is the grandfather dancing with the chassan. And it's a special simcha for him because he has eight children and this is, every one of his children was married with children and this is, and, and now he's been to a wedding of every one of his kids' kids. This is his youngest kid. Youngest grandchild. His youngest, not youngest grandchild, but his youngest kid is marrying off his oldest son. So he's now been to weddings of each of his kids. But here's what got me. But it's not his first eight kids. His first wife and his first eight kids were killed in the camps. This is his second eight kids. And that caught my neshama. I, I, I looked at this guy. I said, this is the strongest man in the entire world. And I understood the whole circle, this black circle of Satmar guys dancing. I looked at it like, you know what? They're going to kill us every 75 years. And they look at it as like, why should I spend the intermediate 75 years kissing up to them and doing it their way? They're going to kill me anyway. Whatever we do, they turn it on us. Why should I worship them in between? You know what? I'm going to stick in my own world. I'm going to do it my way, speak my language, dress my way, take care of my kids. When they kill me, they'll kill me. But till then, I'm going to do it my way. I looked at them. I walked away with such awe. These are the strongest people in the world. I felt ashamed of myself as some kind of groveling kiss-up, trying to like placate my my uh, the people, my my slave masters. I, I like to talk with like extra drama. I'm getting a little carried away, but but to me that was a definitive moment, and that's wow. what that's what I I want people to know about the Holocaust. Like just stop it. 
Life is too short and too important to spend your whole life placating other people. Do your thing. All right, one of my favorite topics after the Holocaust, Holocaust not a favorite, but it's a very important one, is Shabbos. Shabbos is the center of the Jewish people, of Jewish life. You've seen many people on their journey to Shabbos. If one of our listeners right now is living out in Kansas, and he's like, I know the truth of Torah. I know the truth of mitzvahs. I know that Shabbos is ideal. But Rabbi, come on. Between me living my life right now and becoming a Shabbat-observant Jew is a million miles away. What do you have to tell him? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of things. Well, what do I have to tell him in a podcast? Yes. Or like, cause you're supposed to like do things slowly and like ease them into things. Like, no, they're convinced. They're convinced. On, on the podcast, I, I mean, the first time I could just say, hi, I love you. We're here. We're, we're in a big city. We're a lot of Jews, but you're part of us. We're really proud of you and keep on doing what you're doing. What do I really want to tell him if I had like a few months to slowly tell it to him? Yeah. Only about, okay, you want to hear about Chavez, but the first thing is, Kansas is nice. You know, I, I saw the Wizard of Oz. I, 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 I know Kansas. Um, who doesn't like uh, those rolling things? Dorothy. Or whatever? No, but uh, Toto. But, but, but you got to come, you got to leave Kansas. Judaism is, is, is not a solo. It's a team sport. Everything's very, very hard alone. In the beginning, you're inspired and it, you, you, you love the, the swimming upstream. But if you're married and your kids, they deserve to be part of the community. People, who's strong enough to do everything on their own? A lot of times we need to be carried by the tide. And we have such a beautiful tide. I, I would love to sit down and convince you to come to a Jewish community. They'll take care of you. Whatever business you have, they'll help you get established. We take care of people. You, your wife and kids and you, you deserve to be part at, of the community. At this point, I should be slipping in the ad. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast is brought to you by Torchwood, the next generation community right here in Houston, <laughs> Texas. Okay, now very good. Okay, that's very good. Yeah, right, but, but that's exactly what we you, did. Let me tell you we something. said we have to start a community so that people who are growing in a, in, on right. a journey. Right. The advertisement for everything I just said is the Wolby House. Anyone, just come for Shabbos from Kansas, spend Shabbos by the Wolbys. You will never be able to go back to Kansas. The door is open. People are coming in a whole Shabbos and there's, the kids are playing and they're going with their friends and they're singing Zmiros and there's groups and there's a shear in the house. It was raining, pouring, like only a dozen Houston over here. And there was a shadow by the front door and they saw that there was somebody who was walking in the street who was getting soaked and they ran to the overhang of the Wolbys. So the Wolbys open door and says, what are you standing there? Come in. They give them food and they sit them down and they're like, this is what I did when I was in Pennsylvania. We, we, we would get secular Jews who would, you know, I would sort of trap them in the supermarket. <laughs> you know, in the supermarket, they sort of, in, in real life, they avoid the rabbi. But in the supermarket, they look for you. They, they like let you know they're Jewish. They pass they you. you. They, they bagel you. They pass you with the cart and they tell the little daughter, so are you ready to go to grandma for the Seder? <laughs> you, know? you know, even though it's like July. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But so when someone bagel Boy, me. Boy, which one of these matzo balls would my grandmother <laughs> right, right. make? Do, yeah. do you know, like, there's a whole basket full of like ham and they pull out these bagels and they go, Rabbi, is this a good kosher sign? You know, you know. So people want you don't know they're Jewish. So when people did that, I would say it's like, whoa, you're Jewish. That's so cool. You got to come for Shabbos. I wouldn't take no for an answer. They would come. And when they came for Shabbos, so what I would do is after the meal, I would say, let's come. I want you to meet somebody, you know. And I would go to the down the block. We lived in the middle of where all the Jews were living, all people who had just recently shown me Shabbos. And I would like knock on the door, like not even not even wave and open. I would go. Pushed open, yo, it's the rabbi. And they would go, oh, the rabbi's here. And we'd come in and they would come and we just walked into someone's house. And then two minutes later, we were sitting by our table, laughing, drinking, schmoozing. And then we'd all go together to the third house. And within an hour and a half, these people saw a life they never imagined. People who were like them, doctors, lawyers, professionals, who were comfortable in each other's lives, talking about their kids' growth, talking about their trips. And you know that that's the 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 brilliance of Shabbos. We have a mitzvah of eruv. We have to stay in an eruv because otherwise we can't carry. You can't live in a community that doesn't have an eruv. But that also obligates us to be in a community. Like you started off right. saying about Shabbos, you have to be in a community. That's the specialty. That's the beauty. That's what preserved the Jewish people more than Shabbos. 
more than the Jews watched over Shabbos, the Shabbos watched over the Jews. Yeah, yeah. So I know I'm 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 doing more community than Shabbos, but but community is is. What's your favorite thing of Shabbos? What's your favorite part of Shabbos? Yeah. So Shabbos is uh, it's an acquired taste, you know. When you're young, maybe Shabbos is good food, and you like having your parents around and getting attention. But as you get older, you become a teenager. Shabbos becomes for many people the hardest mitzvah in the Torah. Because, and this is why it's the most important, I think the most important mitzvah in the Torah. Because if, if life is about our dreams and becoming all that we could be, and the, the, the negative, the, the evil inclination is the thoughts that, who am I fooling, it'll never happen. So what happens then? What happens when we invariably start to have second thoughts about our dreams? So people start to, uh, to give up, on, they don't believe it'll come true. And when we don't believe dreams come true, so now you have to hide from your dreams. How do you hide from dreams? You need noise-canceling headphones, you need loud crowds, you need internet and phones, and people sit the whole day on their phones hiding from reality, checked out. And people can spend 80 years not facing themselves. So, so then what do you experience? The highest achievement you could have if you're refusing to face yourself, if you're successful at avoiding it, so you can be numb. If you're successful, you could be numb. Numbness is not a way to live. To imagine 80 years of, of waking up in the morning, pushing the snooze button, running late a whole day, staying up a whole night, partying till I'm, this is what the college kids do at least, and until I'm so tired I fall right to sleep at night. I can't go to bed until I'm so tired because if I'm not tired and I'm lying in bed in the silence, I think of all my truths and my dreams and it hurts too much. If I'm caught up during the day, I'm, I'm also, I think about things. I have to always be late so I'm never thinking, never present, go to sleep late. And It's a vicious can, cycle. You can do this for 80 years and then never feel the pain of your dreams but never feel the joy of anything. It's just numbness. What Shabbos does is it forces you to face your truths. Because in the silence, when you turn off everything, you turn off your phone and your computer and knows nowhere to go, so you have to look in the mirror. And you have to see, and in the silence, everything you ever dreamt of exists. And initially, that's painful. And that's why Shabbos is so hard. The hardest thing is to face your truth, to face who you wanted to be when you were eight, before trauma and drama and all the things that made me lose the belief in myself. If you, if you can keep Shabbos and you force yourself to look in the mirror, then you're going to have to embrace your dreams. And then... Then you get greatness. And, and then you get it. Then it comes true. Dreams are in reach. The only way you fail is by running away. The only way you don't become who you were meant to be is when you don't try. But most people are... Became, the greatest skill of the modern world is hiding. All of the greatest institutions are hiding. You know? They used to say, you want to make money, you make a better mousetrap. Today, you want to make money and make a better hiding place. Place with louder music. You know, I tell the students, I say, you think, I'm here to, you think I'm here to talk to you to tell you to stop going to clubs. I want to be honest. That's exactly why I'm here. I'm here to tell you to stop going to clubs. But, but it's not for the reason you think. You think the reason I'm telling you don't go to clubs is because clubs are it's too hedonistic. It's too much physicality, materialism. You should be more spiritual. You should be more holy. Be more about your soul than your body, the world to come, than this world. Don't party so much. That's what you think. And that's, that's foolish. The only thing the Torah wants is for you to be happy. That's the only goal is joy. You know why we tell you don't go to clubs? Because nobody ever went to clubs to be happy. The reason people go to clubs it's because every year they get darker and louder. It's a place to hide from all your truths. It's a place, a place to hide from who you wanted to be when you were complete before, before life got difficult. And the opposite of a club is Shabbos. Shabbos is... is Serenity. <laughs> it's it's, it's a, peace. Shabbos v'yinafash. Yeah. You know what? I tell, I tell girls, if you want to find a good husband, see how he deals with Shabbos. If a guy has to run around the whole Shabbos and he can't deal with the silence and he can't sit still, that means he can't look at himself. And that means he's going to treat you exactly like he treats Shabbos. Because a girl is like a girl is 24-7 Shabbos. When a man looks in his wife's eyes, what does he see? He sees everything he promised when he was a chassan. And if you're not that guy, you can't look in the eyes. So the way the guy keeps Shabbos is exactly how he's going to talk to his wife. 
Like if there are guys who can't wait for Shabbos, if you're an honest guy and ethical and you work hard and you daven and you take care of your kids, you do everything, you can't wait for Shabbos because you want to sit there and people who like how they look, they love to look in the mirror. You know, Shabbos is a mirror. It's just my life. If I'm happy with my life, I can't wait. People count the days to Shabbos. A man who's doing everything he's supposed to do, he can't wait to look his wife in the eyes. Because he, there's no greater joy than that look in the eyes that says you're everything you promised. So, by the way, this is why all the metaphors for Shabbos are women. You know, uh, the Kala, the Malka, the Eshet Chayel. Because Shabbos and womanhood are the same thing. They're both the presence of your truths. In the wife's eyes and the silence of Shabbos, we see ourselves. And in order to, to be able to live with that, you have to be proud of yourself. So Shabbos is the secret to becoming proud of yourself. The alternative is a long, long period of numbness. And the truth is there isn't even any numbness. Every club closes. Every drug wears off. You're always going to feel the pain of not being who you're supposed to be. So Shabbos is it's, it's the only way to live. Uh, I want to yeah. add just one story. A friend of mine, dear friend of mine, was once a drug addict. And I said to him, Weird, when did, like, how did you stop? You were in this downward spiral for years and years and years. You were taking, it started with the simple ones and more complicated and more intense and more intense and more intense. How did you stop? He said, by mistake, one time, he looked in the mirror. He said, for wow. years and years, he avoided looking in the mirror. He never looked at himself. Wow. One time, he looked in the mirror and he stopped. Because that mirror, he was, a, he was able to see his reflection and say, okay. look what's become of you. Okay, you just said my whole speech in four you, sentences. You say, you're more efficient. <laughs> but that's, you know, but, but if you have Shabbos, then you don't have to wait to by accident see yourself in the mirror. It's, it's just a forced, a forced session with yourself every week. The first Shabbos is brutal. The second one is the best day of your life. You know? <laughs> I, tell, I tell a joke. It's not a joke. I said, you know, if, if you go to Israel, even in America today, you know people spend their whole Shabbos eating sunflower seeds. Karinim. You know, the popping them. Nobody eats sunflower seeds during the week. Only on Shabbos. Why? Because during the week you have a cell phone. You're texting. Garinim are Shabbos texting. It's a way to not be present the whole day. It's a way to live in the silence. It's, people find loopholes. They find workarounds. I need to hide. So, but it's Shabbos. So I'll just, the whole day. Whole day. That's, so, that's tragic. It's tragic. That's tragic. That's right. Let's outlaw Gary Nim. They'll find that again. If someone who's trying to run will always find a place to hide. If someone is looking for that's a true. place to connect to themselves, they'll find a way to connect. And Shabbos is the greatest gift for that. If you want to connect to your real self, yeah. Rabbi well, Feldheim yeah. is giving you the secret here. Yeah. Don't but, be afraid but of again, yourself. But again, the community comes in. You can't do it by yourself. It's overwhelming the pressure. But if everyone's doing it then the silence becomes the norm. My you can't friend. keep Shabbos in, in Kansas. I, I shouldn't say you can't. If you could, then maybe you're Mashiach. But it's, it's very rare that people have that much energy. And even if you do, who says your wife does? And even if you and your wife have that power, maybe you who says don't. all every one of your kids is going to? You're living in La La Land. The world is, the world's not that simple. Don't make it harder for yourself. And, and you deserve the joy and the benefits of being, I'm not saying to move to New York or Lakewood, but you move to a developing Jewish community where there's a school and your kids could have friends and Shabbos play dates and life is too short to be isolated. To, 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 yeah, to live it alone. All right, so just a couple of small, quick questions. Okay. There are a lot of amazing things happening with the Jewish people today. What do you think is the single greatest virtue of the Jewish people today? What makes you proudest to be a Jew today? You're a proud. Everyone's a proud Jew. Okay, what is it that makes you a proud Jew? Um, I'll tell you one thing that sticks out. I don't know if it's so much even pride's the right word. This is my most optimistic thing about the Jewish people today is that the Torah community has achieved independence. For so many years, like anything we had to do, government, you had to go through gatekeepers, you know? The, the, the rabbis and the from people during the Holocaust were trying to get, save, save Jews from Europe. So we had to go through the reform, in, you know, 
the Jewish establishment here, who were horrified at the idea of letting in European old-fashioned Jews, ruining their good gig in America. You wanted to get government money or anything, you had to go through the gatekeepers who were secularized Jews. And what happens is when you live like that and, and, and you're the minority and you're... So in order to raise an, a generation, you have, you have to have pride. And when everybody else is bigger than you and richer than you and more powerful than you, there's so many obstacles. Today, we have everything. We have more Torah than ever before, more wealth than ever before. We're the most, we take care of our own charities. God forbid someone dies young. We're raising money to support the family. We're totally self-sufficient. Today in, in, in New York, you know, every politician is spending half of his campaign with yarmulkes at events, you know, and, and, and the more liberal Jewish groups that hated religion are complaining that how come they don't come to us? You know, like uh, it used to be like we had to beg them for crumbs. So I, I look at the world a lot through the eyes of, again, community is like raising a generation and. And, and pride, and and we've been so persecuted and so beaten. We fought, we've reached a point now where the pride of Judaism is so we have, we it's, it's almost too good, you know. It's almost uh, like you get comfortable when you don't have any 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 weak any weak defenses. So, you know, you're building communities. So does, you feel so proud when everything's we have a shul now and a mikvah and an erev. We're like we're complete now. With that comes maybe the risks of complacency and comes its own challenges. Comes its own challenges, but I feel like after I, I mean, well, I, again, here's where you see a little of both. When I went to yeshiva, it was like we grew up Shabbos afternoon. We had these pirche groups. Every story we heard was about either inquisitions, pogroms, or holocausts, and we saw ourselves as rebuilding Torah. I wanted to go to yeshiva. I wanted to be part of rebuilding Torah. And it was like, it was uphill, it was a battle, and we read all these stories always in Israel of the government blocking yeshivas in this town, and, and always the leftists trying to stop the expansion of Torah against Arabs and mikvahs. And we won. We're there. We have everything. We built it. And now we have to face the problems that my kids don't feel like they're saving the world anymore. You know? Today, it's like, you, you almost feel like, like, uh, Yeshiva doesn't need me, you know? It's, um, it's, it's, you know, I wish, I wish my kids would have, I'm so happy that we're there. We hope you're able I, to maintain I, I, it. I wish my kids would have that sense of mission, which I, I don't know how to replace it. I, I was always felt like I'm the most important person in the world. I'm in yeshiva. I'm saving the world. I live in this little community. I'm like so important. We're not a big city. And then, and now my kids, it's like there's lines to get into any good yeshiva and like uh, such a bracha. But we have to be cognizant of, of the, the pitfalls and the risks of that. Amazing. So, now, another question. There are a lot of not so great things happening with the Jewish people in our generation. What makes you most concerned about the Jewish people today? Well, okay, I, I guess the easy way to do it is uh, is to just finish off where we were going. You know, with success and with comes a certain complacency, and I'll tell you what I'm scared of. Sort of like, you know, it's a good, is this the last question? Almost? I want to tie together everything I was talking about. It's like, go back to that Satmar guy and the wedding and the Holocaust stuff. And this is what I'm feeling in the question. Like, that, you know, we, we created a community where people are full of dreamers. In a world where everybody's numb, and everyone's in clubs and loud music and noise-canceling headphones, it's like, a Jewish community is like something from a hundred years ago. People smiling, wide-eyed, giggly, optimistic. It's like we created this unbelievable little oasis of joy, of optimism in, in, a, in a jaded, cynical world. Like the superpower of this generation is cynicism. 
You know, they can make fun of anything. They have these snide little remarks. Anything you do is a meme, humiliating it, making fun of it. Right. And, and anything of value. Everything. And, and, and we're, like a, we're like, this is what's beautiful. The danger is you can lose it in two minutes with one crack in the wall. And I'm terrified of internet access for children. I don't want to sound too radical. But, no, uh, I, but, I thoroughly but, agree. But I tell you, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I said. This, I just said this to my daughter, Sheva Ruchas. It was during COVID. It's one of my most important messages. It was during COVID, and I said, the world for the last year and a half year has been busy with two phrases. If you remember the early COVID days, it was about COVID, and it was about uh, um, George Floyd. This guy, Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. So the mantra of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin was exactly the same mantra. What did they both say? I can't breathe. COVID was I can't breathe, and George Floyd said I can't breathe. But they were very different versions of I can't breathe. The way I spoke about it was like this, is that breath in the Torah is a metaphor for animated life. God created Adam. He breathed into him the breath of life. And our goal is to take that breath and like a hot air balloon to fly all over the place with the air. Fill, let the air fill your lungs and dance in the garden, have kids and learn Torah and have meals and songs. And this was the goal. And most of the time we find ourselves with that wind knocked out of us. And there's two ways the wind gets knocked out of you. One way the wind gets knocked out of you is the COVID way and one is the George Floyd, is the Derek Chauvin way. The COVID way is internal. It gets in you and it takes away your, your, your breath from inside. And the Derek Chauvin one is from outside. Someone forces and squishes the air out of you. So the, the first way is sort of obvious is that when people look at things they shouldn't look at, you feel ashamed and you feel guilty and it robs you of your whole bounce in your step. That's what COVID is to me. COVID is the danger of kids seeing things and feeling shame and guilt and when you're young and you haven't finished a Talmud tractate, you haven't accomplished things and supported a family and given charity, a little bit of shame runs right through your whole personality and destroys you. And you curl up into a little ball and you hide in the bushes, you become cynical and jaded, you make fun of everything holy. Shame is what, shame is what destroyed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They felt the shame and went to hide. And every Adam and Eve since then has gone through the same thing. We feel shame. We, we, we look at things or see things we shouldn't see. And we have to protect our kids from that. People, the world, the world is so full of degradation and things that make you feel like a cop out. And but the most other one thing is the, what I really want the more important one. What is the, the metaphor of Derek Chauvin? And what's going on in the world is there's two skills that they have. They know how to shame and humiliate every traditional good value. Innocence and bubbliness are all like shallow and juvenile. It's like the dream of the princess of being inspiring and a hero is called La La Land. You're so naive. We're grown ups now. Like I went to Rutgers University once on Halloween to give a share. I didn't know it was Halloween. And I made a note in the rap, I should never go back to college on Halloween. But just like every eight year old girl in the world is dressed like a a princess on Halloween is only one costume at eight years old. At 18 years old in Rutgers is also only one costume. I don't need to explain what it is, but there wasn't one princess on campus. Every person is cheaper and more degraded than the next. What happens to people from eight years old to 18? And if you'd ask all these people, all these girls, like, what happened to you? They're all going to say the same. I was so naive. I was living in La La Land. Can you imagine how childish I was? But no one, you're not allowed to say anything, you don't want to hurt their feelings, but everyone knows that's not the truth. You got broken. Your boyfriend or whatever told people of this, or your parents were fighting, or you, you were rejected from the school, whatever happened, and you don't believe you're going to be a princess. So now you have to silence th those dreams and, 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 and try and get your attention in some cheaper way. So what they do is the secular world makes fun of every beautiful family and marriage. They need to they need to degrade, they need to shame everything valuable. Squeeze the air out of you. And then they need to glorify everything fake. Any kid who's gonna see TikTok growing up is gonna have these wide eyes for all the lies. They know how to market things and make lies and shameful things. Look, the whole existence of these short clip internet things is trying to take 
trying to convince the whole world how happy you are in your empty lives. And if I can get enough people to say, wow, look what I'm eating, look what I'm wearing, look who I'm dating, look what I'm driving. If I can get you to look at me with wide eyes, then I can go home and fool myself. I can live my life through your view of myself. They need to convince the whole world how happy they are. And people don't know this. People look, watch these things, and they go, wow, that world's so exciting. And they don't know the suffering and the pain. So to me, this is the biggest danger in the world today. We're so comfortable and so safe. We feel so powerful that our vigilance a little bit is dropping. We think, who's going to hurt us? We're, we have Torah. We have Chesed. We're not lacking things. I can look at it. It's not going to damage me. And in two seconds, you go on there. They're very, very talented people making everything beautiful shameful and everything shameful beautiful. And what kid is equipped to answer that? I was speaking for a group of Hasidim who were struggling. And I told them, you know what the irony is? The only people who think that anyone out there is having a good time is you. You know, out there they all know it's fake. It's like a cliche. Everyone knows that TikTok is fake. It's just, it's just, it's just a mask. But we who look at it... There was a story that uh, once Herb Uri Zohar... Blessed right. memory. Right. So he was Israel's greatest actor ever, greatest TV personality. He was he was unbelievable. And when he became religious, so he once said a speech and he said, he says, that boy in Bnei Brak, right over there, that boy in Bnei Brak is going to get far greater world to come than I will. He says, because me, I was there. Wow. I know that it's fake. <laughs> right. And I came to the other side. He says, he doesn't know that it's fake. He just thinks that it's something that he's giving up on. I'm, I, I'm here to tell him that it's fake. Yeah. But let me tell you, unfortunately, that boy in B'nai Brak, if he sees too much of it, he's not going st- he's gonna, to he's gonna fall for the fake. And he's not going to live Urizawara's life with the extra step of knowing it was fake. Too many of our kids are going to fall because they're too talented today. They're too good at making it look good shaming everything holy. That's Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin is sitting on our kids' necks and squeezing. I'm not looking at anything I shouldn't look at. I'm not exposed to COVID. I'm wearing my metaphorical mask from getting diseases inside. I have filters on, whatever it is. I protect myself from looking at things. But the outside world will still come and they'll squeeze the life out of you. They can't, they can't allow us. This is the whole left, shaming everything good. They're going to... They, 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 it's a war against against values, you know. Tell the college kids, here's a list of all the agendas of, of, of the modern world. You know, they don't believe in truth. They don't believe in morality. They don't like corporations, fur coats, SUVs, guns, flags, nationalism, Israel, Jews, America, national anthems, nationalism. They don't like the Boy Scouts. Is there any common denominator? Could you figure out? Like someone d- doesn't like for a traditional coats. family. Oh, but okay. Right, it's more basically, but what little fur coats, SUVs, America flags? Like this. Like if someone likes animals, they'll be against fur coats and they love animals. So someone likes, you know, you can like something, but when you you can predict every single position on that thing, then it's not about animals. It's not about the environment. You know, what's the common denominator? What is a gun and an SUV and a fur coat and money and wealth and corporations and religion and truth and morality and Israel and flags? What do they all have in common? Every one of those things is something where if you work at it and you're successful, you feel proud. You feel deserving. If there's no truth, I'm never wrong. If there's no morality, I'm never bad. If, if money is, is, is evil, I'm not poor, if, if, if marriage is not a thing, I'm not single. Like, guns, why, why should you feel strong? What's wrong with the Boy Scouts? How could you hate the Boy Scouts? They can't deal with little boys in uniforms and badges, proud of themselves. Why are they so proud? They need everyone to walk around with a feeling of existential emptiness like they feel. And I tell this to students, and it's like, aha moment. I said, there are real liberals, people who love people. and Those are great people. But Those the are the majority, Abrahams of the world. Those are the Abrahams. But they're the majority of the people out there in academia. They don't love anybody. They hate success and they hate pride. They're, they're, they're not trying to pick up the poor. They're trying to knock down the happy. And you have to have a decoder to know the difference. 
Because when you have a person who loves people and is taking care of disadvantaged people, those are the best people in the world. Attach yourself to them. But if your professor is really, he doesn't care about starving people in Darfur, he hates rich corporations, then those are the most evil people. Their cure for the disparities of life is destroy all success. And these are the people today crushing the ear out of people's lungs. Young, capable, excited kids going to college, worked hard to get in, sometimes had jobs to pay or have jobs on the side to pay their some of their costs and they're taking out loans and they're optimistic and they choose their school and they get there and they unpack their stuff in their dorm all excited. And then three months later, they're zombies, ashamed of every optimistic thought they had with their only superpower, how to cackle and roll their eyes, making fun. And they become part of, like old zombies, they become part of the next incoming class, robbing them of all the breath in their lungs. It's a scary world. Baruch Hashem, the good side of the Frum communities, we've built strong walls and we, we can raise a healthy society. But unfortunately, there are a lot of cracks in the walls and we have to be vigilant. So there's a lot of talent figuring out how to, how to penetrate the cracks in the walls. And our children are too important to... Yeah. Give it a chance. I don't want to sound negative. That sounds so negative to end with. You know, like uh, I no, it's I think it's fascinating. You know fascinating. what? Here's a good way to spin the negativity is you want to know how great you are, look how much we're hated. <laughs> you know, like like that amount of hatred only only comes because you're smiling too much. Like fascinating. Thank you. Thank you know, can, you. can I take one thing? Sure. Please. The brothers sold Yosef to Mitzrayim because he was a dreamer. They wanted to wipe the dreams off his face. Like, stop dreaming. They made him feel bad that he's dreaming so much. But you know what happened? Exactly the opposite. Instead of Mitzrayim wiping the smile of Yosef's face, Yosef comes to Mitzrayim and everyone near him starts dreaming. The the Saramashkim, the Saramashkim, even Paro. When a dreamer walks into a room, it's contagious. Instead of your cynicism silencing him, his optimism is contagious. And he goes, and everyone says, it's like, well, maybe I also could be alive, maybe. And, and that's what Yosef changes Egypt, comes a superpower, comes the biggest people power in the world. The whole world's living off of them. From one engine, from the engine of one Yosef, the entire oh, Egypt is lit. Wow. And, that's, and we can do the same thing for the world. We're all, we're all a Yosef. We're all Yosef. They're going to try and silence us. But if you keep on smiling and, and dreaming... You'll light their fires. It will be the nation of priests and the light unto the nations that we were meant to be. Amazing. Right. Thank you. Of, Thank you for a fascinating conversation, Rabbi. Okay. What are your coordinates? How do people reach you? How do people follow uh, you? How do people... I told you in the beginning, I'm like, that's my, my uh, I don't have anything official. <laughs> you just got to be where I am any given day when I'm talking. I have a lot of Torah, not a lot, some, when I speak for responsible organizations, so they post their, my speeches. So, I have like a back door. I get on some stuff on YouTube from the Project Inspire put up or different things. I have, I have, I have a decent amount of Shira Mantora Anytime, most unbelievable organization. TorahAnytime.com. And I'm writing about five books in my head and making tapes. Whenever I get my act together and I do that, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll tell Thank you, you, you'll Thank tell you. them. Thank you so much, Trev. I felt on this. Okay. was awesome. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby on a podcast produced by Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. We need you. We need partners. Please help sponsor an episode so we can continue to produce more quality Jewish content for our listeners around the globe. Please visit torchweb.org to donate and partner with us on this incredible endeavor.